This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a Navy SEAL veteran. He's a best-selling author, and he created the Terminal List series currently on Amazon Prime. We're happy to have in the house today, Jack Carr. Jack, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'll tell you, this is this is kind of a backstory to how I got to, and I I found Terminal List. So we have a we have a uh, we do three podcasts a week, and one is called Turning Two with Booney, where basically you're in. I have a a guest host, and he interviews me, and we came up with a segment. What am I watching? And he he suggested to me, he said. There's a show out there you might like. It's called Terminal List. I said, okay, I checked it out. First first episode, I'm about halfway through. And you know how you don't know if you're going on? Well, about three quarters of the way. And for the people out there that watch the Terminal List, you'll understand this. It hooks you. And you're in. And, you know, I watched. I, I binge watched it. And uh, pretty awesome. And that got me excited. I'm like, oh, I, I, I want to find the guy that created this and wrote the books. And. And we were lucky enough for for you to come on, so that's that's very cool. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to to watch, and uh, it was a blast making that whole thing. And I got extremely lucky in that uh, the people involved that optioned it, Chris Pratt, and then bringing Antoine Fuqua in, and then getting it to Amazon, and finding the showrunner David DiGilio, that they wanted me involved in every aspect of it. So a lot of times they like to get rid of the author because they don't want you on set saying, you know, you ruined my vision because there's differences between the book and the show because you're telling a story on via different mediums. But uh, they wanted me involved in all of it from the get go. So I was extremely fortunate and learned a ton. And that was the first one. You've written six books. The most recent one is uh, Only the Dead. Before we go back to the beginning, was this your plan all along to write books and then turn them into series? It was just because growing up, I knew I wanted to do those two things. One, serve my country in uniform, specifically 
as a seal and then write thrillers because uh, back in the day, you could read all the nonfiction about special operations, Navy SEALs in particular, and I'm talking early 80s, mid 80s here, and you could essentially find the end of the internet by finding the end of that library bookshelf. But there were these other things out there, these thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life one day. And so if you remember the protagonist, the main character in typical 80s action movies or TV shows or in books, they were all Vietnam veterans. I shouldn't say all. A lot of them were Vietnam veterans. And they were Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces, Marine snipers, uh, CIA, paramilitary. So I was reading books by guys guys like David Morrell, who created the character Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood. And I'm figuring out oh, David Morrell probably did some research into his character. And so I'm learning as I'm reading these thrillers and I'm falling in love with these books at the same time. So I realized that after my time, my other passion other than serving my country in uniform was to write these thrillers. So what I was really doing was giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling, but I always knew after the military, I'd write these books. And as a child of the eighties, it was very natural for me to think, oh, I will write a book, then it will become a TV show or it'll become a movie. And that's just what you did. And uh, so that was always my plan from the beginning. All the way down to Chris Pratt being the lead, right? All the way down to Chris Prime. I wrote one sentence in December of 2014, let's say. Uh, and so I figured, well, I'm well into this thing by now. Let me choose my my star. And at the time, Chris Pratt had not been in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he had not been in Jurassic World yet. He was Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec. And then he had a very small role in Zero Dark Thirty as a SEAL. That's the movie about the Bin Laden raid. Right, so right. I got to see his physical transformation. And I got to see him play a different character. And I thought, this is the guy. And back then, I was thinking, he needs to do something like this in his career. He needs to show people he can do something different. And I'll give him that opportunity now that I've written this first sentence in this book. And uh, so he was from the get go the one person that i wanted to star is my main character james reese and because i was picking my main actor i figured as a child of the 80s i should pick my director and i thought antoine fuqua there's nobody else i want to direct than antoine and lo and behold all these years later chris stars antoine directs and we're all executive producers on this thing and on the next season moving forward that that is very cool and i'm man what you did you started with the, you became a Navy SEAL and then into what you're doing now, but that world fascinates me. You know, as an athlete, uh, I've gotten to do a lot of things in my life. I've been very fortunate, but that always intrigues me. I live in San Diego and uh, as a part of a, of the San Diego Padres alumni, I only played for the Padres for one year, but they reach out once in a while. And, and we went to Coronado Nice, and it was a bunch of us ex players, you know, and some of the guys are, some of the guys are in pretty good shape, but some of the guys are 60 years yeah. old and, and they're not moving very well, but it's just more for the, you know, the, 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 the people on the base, they get a pretty good crowd and you put on, you know, it, it kind of a charity event. So the first time I played in it, I thought, well, you know, I haven't hit, you know, I've been retired now just over 15 years. And I thought, you know, I can still move a little bit, but yeah, we'll have fun. We'll bat it around a little bit. We get there and it's the, the seals all-star team. And these kids are like 21, 22, and they want to kill you. And, and they've got that smile on their face. You know, some guys, they probably grew up watching and, and thought, Oh, we're going to get to play against them. Well, we play against them. Jack, it was embarrassing. (laughs) By the fourth inning, I'm like, these kids have too much energy. They want to beat me too bad. And I can't move like them. 
and uh, it, it ended up being a fun time to watch. I didn't know they were that good, but then we got into some stories. They want, you know, I wanted to know about what they did, and they wanted to ask me about Major League Baseball and, and that life. So it was it was pretty cool, and got to have lunch with them. Nice. That was your life. Ninety six, I think you enlisted. Yep. Uh, for a complete layman like myself, walk walk me through the process of why you enlisted and, and what your goals, what your dreams were. You talked about you, you always wanted to serve your country. So just walk me through it. Yeah, sure will. Uh, when you're down there in Coronado, though, did you go over to the base side and see the obstacle course and see the ground? Oh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. Because sometimes they take uh, uh, professional teams or they take uh, Olympic athletes and kind of give them a tour and let them take the logs and do the log PT or the boat PT or run the obstacle course, uh, do those sorts of things. But yeah, for me, it was uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II. So I grew up with pictures of him and his squadron and he flew a plane called the Corsair, F4U Corsair. And when I was a little kid, there was a show on TV and I was watching it in early syndication because it came on in the late 70s and I was watching it in the early 80s. But uh, it was a show called Black Sheep Squadron with Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton. And I watched that with my dad and that that was our connection to that generation. And he's flying the same plane that my grandfather flew in, he's in, that, in that TV show. I'm making models of that airplane. I have the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then. Because if you had a, a paper map and you went down in the ocean, then your paper map would essentially disintegrate. Uh, but a silk map just would get wet. You could still still use it. So I had those things of his. I had his aviation, his wings. I had his medals. And, uh, and so I just had this connection with the military, but I think it was also just in my DNA. I think it was just in, in my blood and I was drawn towards service. And at the ripe old age of seven, I find out about seals and I find out about them through a, actually my dad's watching football. And for those who remember back in the day, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and there was this one outlier channel that would always have on Sundays uh, a war movie playing, typically a World War II movie playing opposite football. So my dad would be watching football, and when it came up to a commercial, he'd look at his watch, and I was the remote control. Anybody who grew up back then knows that you're the remote control if you're the kid uh, <laughs> back then. So I'd run up to the TV, and I'd switch it to that outlier channel, and I'd watch whatever war movie was on, and my dad would look at his watch for like two minutes and say, turn it back, and then I'd it back to football and we'd continue watching football until the next commercial when I could run back up and be that remote again and get back to the war movie. But one of them was a movie called The Frogmen. And I started pestering my dad with questions about who these guys are because I saw them climbing up over the beaches and putting these explosives on obstacles. And uh, he said, ask your mother. So my mom was a librarian and still is. And uh, so I grew up with books and a love of reading. So we went down to the local library and did some research into what's a frogman? Oh, underwater demolition team, naval combat demolition units. Uh, oh, SEALs. And I remember from that first venture down into the library, my takeaways were that, hey, these are some of the toughest special operators in the world. And uh, the training is some of the toughest ever designed by a modern military. So for me, I wanted to test myself. And I think that's very common, especially for a young man to want to test themselves. And it used to be just part of society. You would have to get to a certain age and then you'd have to prove your value to the tribe or to the community or to the to the country. And typically that was through military service, showing that you were uh, your prowess as a warrior or as a hunter uh, to provide for that family, provide for that tribe, defend that tribe. Uh, and then the crossover is that a lot of those stories that were passed on generation to generation uh, in the oral storytelling tradition were passed along in order to keep lessons alive so that you wouldn't have to generation after generation relearn lessons in blood. So they were told to pass on lessons of the hunt 
and warfare. And so there's that correlation between warfare and storytelling already, even at that young age, even if I didn't recognize it. So went down, did that research, decided I was going to be a SEAL at age seven and just kept my eyes focused on that goal um, uh, all the way until I enlisted and then enlisted and went to boot camp. And so you boot camp with everybody else, no matter what they're going to do in the Navy. And now you go right from boot camp, I believe, to a prep course and then to buds. So they're trying buds is seal training because they're trying yeah, to get buds. more people wanna, through the program. Hear about buds. Yeah, basic underwater demolition seal training. And so for me, though, back in the day, they had a different way they looked at it. They thought, well, 80% of the people who start this program aren't going to make it. So let's train them up ahead of time so that when they fail, we shoot them right off to the fleet in the Navy and they do whatever job we train them to do. So I went to boot camp, then to intelligence school in Dam Neck, Virginia, and then right from intelligence school to SEAL training. So I got to SEAL training in January of uh, 2017, or sorry, <laughs> 1997. And, uh, and then <laughs> Right in, I don't know where that came from. And then right into, uh, right into BUDS. And so graduated in October of that year. But BUDS is essentially the, the training program, the pipeline that leads you into what is now SEAL qualification training. Back in the day, we'd finish BUDS, go right to our team, and then go to, go to the graduate school, if you will. And that was called SEAL, SEAL tactical training. Now it's more of a year-long process. You do BUDS, you go to SEAL qualification training then you go to your team. But for me, yeah, show up down there. It's what I wanted to do my whole life. And a few weeks into it is hell week. And that's when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you don't really sleep again until Friday afternoon. And, uh, and you're just going, you're moving. That's where most of the attrition, most of that 80% attrition happens. Typically the loudest, the fastest, the strongest guys uh, quit right off the bat, which is uh, I'd heard that going in. And then I experienced it actually on the beach in Coronado, California, because you think of, I'm going to be on the verge of hypothermia. I'm going to be awake. This is horrible. And I'm only a half hour into this thing. Why don't I just end my misery now? And for most of the training program, you can quit anytime. So it's an all volunteer program, but usually if you're not in hell week, you have to go find the bell, which is outside of the uh, first phase classroom. And so you go run there, you ring it three times, you take your helmet off, you put it down, and you're out. But during hell week, we have it in the trailer hitch of a vehicle that's always within eyesight of you for this entire week. So we make it very easily easy to self-select out of this program. And uh, people quit in droves, those opening couple, that opening night and then the next night, because once you hit, uh, hit the evening hours, they bring in a whole new cadre of instructors. Typically the largest and the meanest instructors come on about midnight uh, to get you to the, to the morning or to make you quit or make as many people quit as they can. But uh, for me, it's a, it was a test and I always wanted to test myself and uh, I did as much research as I possibly could up to that point. And uh, then I was in it. So for me, what I did was I thought back to all the people who really sacrificed everything for me to be able to follow my dreams. So I thought of people from the inception of this country up until today who sacrificed everything so that I could be there on that beach in Coronado, California, following my dreams. And uh, that really helped put things in perspective. And I thought, you know what, I'm not running over the beach here at Iwo Jima or uh, Normandy and into a hail of machine gun bullets from an elevated position with no cover or concealment between the water's edge and uh, this, uh, this high ground. Uh, I'm like, you know what? I can I can shiver a little more here. I can do a few more push-ups. I can make it to the next meal. I can make it to the next day. Uh, those guys, that was hard. What I'm doing, I'm just testing myself and doing some push-ups here in the sand. So, uh, but the hell we get most of that attrition. Then you go on to second phase. So now you've proven kind of that you're tough enough 
in that first phase. And then you go into the second phase and they want to make sure that you're comfortable in the water. So that's where we get more, uh, the most attrition other than hell week is in something called pool comp. And that's when you're climbing along the bottom of the pool, crawling along the bottom of the pool and instructors pounce on you and they rip off your mask and take your regulator out of your mouth and tie it in a knot and they hit you in the kidney. And so you just, you lose all your air and then they kind of back off and you have to get all your, get your air back on and go through the right procedures in the right order to right. show that you can do these things under stress without oxygen um, and, uh, and then keep going. And so that's where we kind of prove that you're comfortable in the water. You pass that phase of instruction and then you go on to land warfare phase where really they want to make sure that you're safe with weapons and demolition. You're doing some small unit tactics. You're doing some navigation. But uh, by that phase, you're really just showing that you're not going to blow yourself or any of your friends up. And uh, then you graduate and then move on these days to SEAL qualification training for another six months. And then you get to your team, do a full year workup with your platoon, and then off you go to deploy. And uh, for a, a lot of years, that was to Iraq and Afghanistan. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Oh, it's easy peasy. It's just one, two, three, getting that done. You know, you bring me back when you mentioned being at the bottom of the pool with the regulator and ripping it out. When I was a kid, my dad was a diver. <clears throat> That was his, his hobby on the side. I grew up in New Jersey and it was something that we could do together. And I was probably nine, 10, 11 years old. So he says, well, why don't you get certified? I really didn't have interest in doing it, but I'm like, yeah, dad wants me to do it. It's something we could do together. So I did the whole YMCA thing, you know, did, but you had to take the test, do the dive tables. We have a checkout. The first, the, the first uh, test was you got to go into a pool get a buddy and you got a buddy breathe mm -hmm. and I'm 10. Remember this. I'm 10. I, I'm hooked up with about a 60 or 70 year old man, not in the best shape. You got to hold on to each other's vests and you swim around the pool and you, I, he's taking about four breaths, giving me one and ripping the regulator out of my mouth. So I almost drowned in the YMCA. Then we have our checkout dive and we do it in a quarry. It's Jersey. Mm -hmm. There's snowflakes in the air. I've got a wetsuit. I got a hole in my wetsuit, and they put us down on this plank. You, you shimmy down a rope, probably 30 feet, and we're sitting on this, however they have it set up. But I'm sitting there. I'm freezing cold. I got a hole in my wetsuit. I'm 10. And the next thing you know, sure enough, the, the instructor comes up, and he rips my regulator out of my mouth. He rips my goggles off. Now, he didn't punch me in the gut like you, but you were telling that story, and it just brought me back Uh to, 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 I mean, that was one phase trying to get my, I, I, it was either Nowy or Patty. Yeah. Right. What it was. Yeah. 
But uh, that brings me back to to when I was a kid, and I know what you're talking. It's one thing I could relate with yeah. you. Like I did that. Yeah, did you have uh, vis- visibility down there in that in that quarry? Oh, it was probably that particular day because, like I said, there, it was snowing. Now it was flurries, but nevertheless, it was snowing, so it was kind of stormy, cloudy out. I could probably Ooh. see six eight inches. Yeah, that's not the most ideal uh, situation in which to introduce someone young to right. scuba diving. Right. Uh, you could juxtapose that to, oh, you're in Hawaii or the Caribbean or whatever. And right, it's a right. Beautiful day out and you can see for a long ways and it's not too cold. Yeah, you did it in a very difficult place. And and I got certified <laughs> at the same time with my dad. Uh, I was nine. Yeah, I think he talked them in because I think, I think legally you have to be a lot older. Maybe back then there was a little more leeway. leeway. Yeah, there was lied or if he just talked them into it but i was nine and uh northern california so up at a place called salt point up there and i remember same thing the wetsuit i think i have a still have a picture somewhere i've been searching for it uh it's in a box somewhere that i need to find it at some point but i don't think they had like the smallest wetsuits weren't for kids back then in 1980 what is it would be 1982 i think 83 but you just had to get the smallest adult wetsuit and like cut it off or like roll up the sleeves you know roll it up like that so and same thing with your feet like the same type of deal you feel claustrophobic in this thing and then they put you in this water that's freezing and where there's no visibility and put you down doing something similar i mean mine was in the ocean but i remember there was no visibility so you can't see the bottom you just go under you're just hearing yourself breathe and you're just going down and salt point happens to be i think the northernmost part of a great white uh, shark breeding ground that works its way all the way down to Southern California, I believe. So you have that in the back of your head. So that for a nine-year-old, that was pretty interesting, but uh, that was my introduction to, to scuba diving. And it was with Nowy back in the day. And then I got certified multiple times over the years after that. But, uh, but I was thinking about it recently because my kids are, you know, a little bit older my other youngest is 12. And I was thinking about where to get him certified and we're in Park City, Utah. And they do a similar thing here where you do all the classroom, you do the pool right. work, and then you go out to some quarry to get that, those, those final qualification dives. So uh, I think we'll do that at some point. Isn't it amazing, though, you were talking about being in Hawaii with the, you know, you got a half suit on and people are carrying your tanks for you. You don't have to worry about doing your dive. You don't have to worry about doing your dive charts. They've got it all worked out for you. You know, you're with somebody. They're holding on to you. Uh and other computers, you know, my, I remember the, the second time I got certified, I think the computers had, uh, had, uh, come on the scene. And, uh, so it made it a lot, even dive watches back then there was a citizen dive watch that I had that was surprisingly accurate, uh, by the time I got to the early nineties and, uh, very different than my regulator setup and all that for in 1983, where it was all, oh, I guess you'd call it analog, but you really did have to know the work those tables out. I, I, and I was in. We were in Maui, and this is when my kids are a little bit younger, so it had to be 10 years ago. And they wanted to go scuba diving. I said, oh, well, I'm a professional scuba diver. Now we are, you know, I always throw the Naui and the Patty out That's just right. so everybody knows that I know. You know. Right. So I said, well, what do we need to do? You know, they give me the prices and they said, well, what you're going to have to do is, we're, you know, we'll take them in the pool here. We'll work around them. I, I mean, it was like 10 minutes with the 10 year olds and then we're headed down to the beach and I'm, I'm hitting my kid. I'm like, you carry your own tank. And I'm thinking, this is a far cry from me sitting and working out tables and taking tests and almost drowning with the old guy, buddy breathing. I said, you got it. You got an easy course. I could have just done this. And yeah, but uh, (laughs) no, it was just something my dad wanted me to do. You know, it's like, if you're, 
you don't have to go through a hunting school to go hunting, but it's probably wise of you if it's something you're going to do in your life to do the safety course and, and learn about the, the craft that you're about to go into. Um, you mentioned you wanted to be a SEAL when you were seven years old. Did you, did you ever waver or was that from seven whenever asked, I'm going to be a SEAL? And there's no question about it because I know for me as a kid, and I remember earlier than that, two years old, three years old, it's what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be a baseball player, of course. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a matter of this is what I'd like to do. No, this is what I am going to do yeah. through high school. You know, uh, you know, I signed a letter. I'm going to University of Southern California. I got a scholarship and I'd be, you know, having my meetings with my high school counselor. And she'd be like, well, what's your backup plan? What do you want to study? I said, ma'am, I don't really care what I study. Just keep me eligible. I want to stay on the field. I'm going to play in the big leagues for a long time. And she'd look at me like, well, okay, but what do we, don't you understand? There is no backup plan. It was already in my mind. It sounds like a lot of your story, only a different genre. Yep. No, exactly the same. And so many people like that guidance counselor. And even people, if they don't mean to, they can just tell you with that look like, oh, like you'll come to the realization that only X percent of whatever high school players will go on to college and any X percent of that will go on to the professional leagues. And uh, and a small percentage of that will will be able to make a good living at it because they're good enough to start or whatever it might be. Uh, They don't even have to articulate it like that. But they tell you with a look. Uh, like that guidance counselor saying, well, what's your backup plan? And she didn't really mean backup plan. She means like, what are you going to do when this doesn't work out? Um, and so I think ignoring all that, there is a wanting to knowing what you're going to do, like listening to that calling. I think everybody hears a calling at an early age and some listen and some don't. And I happen to listen to mine and both of mine uh, service and writing. Um, and I look at them as professions not careers. I think people start, when they start thinking of something in terms of a career, it just shifts that focus in their mind and puts you into this kind of this different sphere rather than a profession. Like you're a professional ball player. Uh, there's, it's called the profession of arms, not the career of arms for a reason. And uh, writing is a profession uh, rather than a career. And uh, I think if you listen to yourself early on in life and don't let people dissuade you or use what they do say or how they look at you to dissuade you as fuel uh, to make you do that extra push up, that extra pull up, make you throw those extra, whatever you're going to do, spend that extra hour on the field, whatever it is, whatever it is, read that book about strategy, whether it's in baseball or it's on in tactics or strategy, whatever it might be uh, on the battlefield, that all those things are helping build this foundation and you continue to build on that foundation throughout life. But if you don't listen to that calling early on and you go off that course, then you're looking back. Oh, if only I'd spent that little extra time on the field practicing. Man, I could, man, I could have played ball, or maybe I should have done this, and not like not not been dissuaded by the people who told me how hard it is to play in uh, in the NFL or in you know professional hockey or whatever whatever that passion is or special operations. Oh, you know how many people make it into the SEAL teams? What are you going to do when you fail out? Like that's what the look tells you what's your backup plan uh for when you don't make it through this program and it's very very similar anything that's top tier like that that's difficult and it being difficult 
is part of that draw. It's that draw, that draw for you, that draw for me, it being difficult that few people can do it. That's what inspires us along the way to put in that extra work to get there to achieve those dreams. But if you listen to other people and don't use it as fuel, because you're going to tell you, it's not just about don't listen to them. You're going to hear it because everyone is going to tell you either like that guidance counselor did or with that look that uh, you should have a backup plan. But it's uh, it's about using those looks and those 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 questions about what you're going to do when you don't make it uh, into the professional leagues or you don't make it to play in college or you get cut from the team or whatever. What are you going to do next? Using that as fuel so that you can go. And what's great about this country is that we have the op- these options and opportunities. Like we won the lotto just by being born in this country and all most all the rest of the world wishes they could just have been born here so they could pursue these dreams and we got that we won that lotto by being born here no matter what our circumstances um because everyone's gonna get knocked down everybody's gonna run up against something that's gonna be difficult in life no matter if you're you know born with a huge trust fund or you're the most gifted athlete in the world doesn't matter you're gonna get knocked down somewhere along the way but we're all gonna have to overcome these things so it's just being born here gives us the opportunity so man, take advantage of that and, uh, and, and listen to that calling. What's it like when you get your trident? <laughs> I think it might be different today. Maybe not the feeling, but uh, physical feeling uh, versus the emotional feeling. So when you get that trident, it is uh, one of the greatest days ever. Uh, and now I think they kind of, after you've gone through, they give it to you and they don't pound it into the chest anymore. It might, there might be some unofficial ceremonies, but uh, the way that it happened back in the day for me is that after you go through buds, after you got to your team, went through what they called SEAL tactical training, graduate that, well, then you're still on probation. You're not yet a SEAL. You have to prove yourself to this group of people, this platoon that you're going to go downrange with. So they have to want you to be next to them in combat. And you have six months on probation before and some other tests at the end of that, uh, where before they award you that trident, before you earn that trident, because you have the respect of your peers now, uh, because now they've seen you not just graduating buds, not just going through SEAL qualification training, but now you're in this workup where you're getting ready to go downrange, or you're getting ready for that call. Let's say it's pre-September 11th days, and you're not going to war. You're preparing to go to war. But uh, when they gave me that trident, I remember that the guys I thought were going to pound it in really hard didn't hit as hard. And the guys I thought were not going to hit it as hard. Those ones really hurt. So they put it in your chest uh, without those backings on there. Everybody comes by, you're up against a Connex box. In my case, that's how, how I was. That's how we were. And they pound that thing into your chest. And uh, I mean, so much so that the wings are like bent around because so many people are coming through and just pounding that thing in. And uh, it's a, it's a great feeling. It's an amazing day. That's awesome. You're a seal. What's the most, uh, What's the most asked question you have when when people find out that's a Navy SEAL? What's usually what what's the most asked question for you? Uh, most people ask if you ever thought of quitting in buds. Like that's the that's the the one you get most because a lot of people have seen it on Discovery Channel. That sort of a sort of a thing. Um, and for me, you know that it's a possibility, so you think of it in those terms that most people are not going to make it through, and so you know that it's out there, and that's why you're there to prove it that you can make it through to yourself, to this instructor staff, um, to the future 
SEALs you're going to serve alongside because now you have something in common with each and every one of them, whether they went through in 1962, uh, 78, 95, whatever it might be, you have something in common with all of those of those people now. But the, the question that I get asked most is probably about, did you ever think of quitting in BUDS? And uh, I don't didn't think of it in terms of, oh, I, I, I'm close to quitting. No, it's like, you're thinking of it in terms of it's a possibility and you're seeing people quit in droves and uh, it just spurs you on because for me, it told me that this program is working. Uh, those people uh, weeded, were weeded out for a reason uh, and they got to weed themselves out. They got to go up there and ring that bell themselves and self-select out of the program. So it's uh, so for me, I didn't think of it in terms of, oh, I'm on the edge of quitting. If they asked me to stay in this water for five more minutes, I'm going to quit. No. Uh, Never an option. No, it was more in terms of I just knew it existed, and that's why I'm here to test myself. But uh, but no, I never never uh, thought of quitting in terms of oh, I'm really close to ringing that bell. <laughs> you talked about uh, okay at the beginning of it, you thought the biggest, loudest guys, they were out the quickest. Um, at the end with the trident, you thought the guys that were going to pound it in didn't pound it in. So you're learning lessons throughout this whole this whole process. Did you get deep into the process and you woke up one day and you saw a guy ring the bell and you thought, no way he did it. Like it just blew you away. Right away. Uh, Hell week. Uh, the first couple of first hour of hell week, two guys, the guy that was the fastest on the obstacle course. And then the other guy that was the strongest, like looks, looked, uh, well, well, he was the strongest um, and the biggest and the loudest. And, you know, you go into that and you look at them ahead of time. And you're like, oh, man, that guy is so fast on this obstacle course. And that guy is gigantic. How strong he is. Look how fast he climbed. He, the- he was oh. probably on the softball team. You know? right, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and you're like, oh, man, and they quit first. And you're like, oh, wow. So for a second, you're like, no way. And then the second later, you're like, that's the program working because it's about finding that person with grit. It's finding that person with the mental fortitude to make it through this program. And uh, it's not about size and strength. I think any high school, average high school athlete can physically make it through the program because you're going to get there and you're going to, if you're an average athlete, you're going to get a lot better in the weeks leading up to hell week and doing all these soft sand runs and learning the technique to climbing a rope or going through the obstacle course or throwing the logs around or having that boat on your head or running with this boat on your head with your boat crew or paddling out through the surf uh, or doing these two nautical mile ocean swims that you do every week. Uh, like you're going to learn these techniques and you're going to get stronger simply by running in the sand, soft sand all these days in a row. And so you're going to get strong. So any average high school athlete can make it through. Uh, but you're going to have also people who are exceptional athletes that don't have that grit, that don't have that mental fortitude that are going to quit in those first couple hours of hell week. So, uh, so yes, I did have that, that reaction, like, no way that guy just quit. This thing's just, we, we, we just started this thing like 10 minutes ago. How, right. Oh, that's the program working. And that's when I was like, awesome. Love this. This is the, this is a problem I've run into in real life. Okay. Uh, I see a serviceman, whether it be getting on the airplane, uh, walking down the street at Starbucks in uniform. I'm very appreciative of the people that serve, serve their country and, and have a lot of respect for it. But I see the, the lips. It seems like every time a serviceman walks by and people will just give the same, thank you for your service. Thank you. And I just think, Man, I want to come up with something cooler to say that seems more genuine than the thank you for your service. Oh, they just told you to say that. As as a man that was that was a Navy SEAL, 
when somebody comes up to you, of course you like. It, it's like a fan when you're playing baseball. Hey, love watching. Well, that's thank you. Thank you for coming to watch me play. Thank you for appreciating. You hear that all the time. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. What should I say to to a, to a guy like you? Somebody, if they're in Starbucks, if if they're getting on the airplane first, other than thank you for your service. Yeah, I've you always know, thought about this. Yeah, you know, it's because what else do you what do you say? And uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm certainly you know appreciative, and I say thank you right back. I say, hey, thank you for your support, and I, I right. sincerely mean that. Um, and I tell people like I see a Vietnam veteran, a Korean War veteran, a World War II veteran who are losing so many of, of course, because they're up there, age 95 to 105 ish. <laughs> that yeah, you know. Anyway, they're 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 getting up there, um, but I always thank them for their time in uniform, just to make it a little little different than uh, than maybe what other people say. So I I typically do say that to those to those guys. Hey, thank you for your time in uniform. Um, I don't know for whatever reason, just to be I don't know. Uh, but same, but I have the same thing that uh, it's the same reason that you're you're asking me that question. I have that same kind of question when I when I think about what I say to Vietnam veterans and to and to Korean War veterans and World War II veterans. Um, so I typically thank them for their time in uniform and uh, for those freedoms that they that they gave me to allow me to one serve and two now write do those two things that I'm most passionate about. So so that's that's what I say. But for me, I uh, you don't have to say anything. But uh, you know, if, if you do say thank you for your service, that's say thank you for the support. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like you were talking about earlier, sometimes sometimes just a look says a lot of a lot of words that that don't have to be spoken. Yep, no, exactly but right. You know, like that nod, like "Hey, I appreciate what you do." You know, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this. Now I laugh when I say this. I wrote a book about seven eight years ago. I'm far from an author. The author when they say the author of uh, it, my the, the name of my book was Home Game. They didn't let me name it what I wanted to name it. But anyway, what, I get a, what name it. What was your title? Huh? I wanted to name it uh, Ball in the Family. After all in the family, but I'm thinking, wait a minute, my whole family played this game. And and they were they said it would offend people because I used the term ball. <laughs> so I, you know, it's like I didn't say balls. Right. I said ball. I didn't say, right. It was ridiculous. Anyway, push came to shove. Uh random house you know they won they were they, they paid me a pretty good upfront and that's the only reason i wrote the book because as an athlete you know i i'd seen through the years i see guys get out of the game and they read a book hmm. and they kind of broach some unwritten rules like wait a minute he's not supposed to talk about that hmm. so when i was first approached to do the book instantly in my mind i said no chance i don't write books that clubhouse to me is sacred 
And but then we started talking. And it's like, no, we don't want to that. We, we want to know what it's like, you know, with your grandpa and your family. We want you to tell your family story. Then I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, that might be cool. You know, mm. my grandpa had passed away probably when they came to me six or seven years. And I was really close with him. Mm. And I I said, OK, then they started offering, you know, what the price was for the upfront. And I'm like, well, that's all right. Now I'm in a better mood. Maybe I will write a book. Ended up doing it, uh, educational process. I had a, I had a ghostwriter, so it was easy. I'd have a meeting once a week. I'd just spew. He'd have questions. I'd spew. He'd write. We'd, you know, we'd edit and, you know, went through the whole, whole thing. Ended up finishing it. And I thought this was pretty cool. You know, what was cool about it was telling my stories about my grandpa who, who's not with us anymore. And I don't know. It, it was a pretty cool process. I'm glad I, I did it. I don't think I'll ever write another one, but for me, that wasn't my passion writing books. But it was a cool experience for you, who's a real author. <laughs> how do you write? How do you write these books and keeping the integrity of the community intact? Is there is there a strategy for you, or is there something? Is there a guideline you go by? Not really. Uh, mine are we're not nonfiction, and there's been a lot of controversy about guys in the SEAL teams writing nonfiction books. Right. Um, getting whether they got them approved or not, um, there's still controversy about guys trying to capitalize on the trident or whatever else. Um, but for me, mine were fiction. I always wanted to write fiction, and uh, now I'm writing nonfiction. But it's uh, this, my first nonfiction comes out in a year and a half, and it's about the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. So it's trying to capture that history, capture those lessons learned, so the future generations don't have to learn them in blood. So it has nothing to do with my my seal time. But uh, but yeah, there was a lot of controversy about guys getting out and doing the same things that you're talking about with uh, with baseball, talking about some of those things that guy, other guys might not want to be out there. Um, and so there, there was that in the community, but mine were fiction. And at the same time, I wasn't going to let, uh, essentially the political climate of the day dictate my passion in life, which was after service to write thrillers. And so I figured that, Hey, some people are going to like them. It's subjective, uh, just like anything, any other form of art. And uh, some people will like them, some people will not, but I'm not going to let the fear of people either not liking them or people in the SEAL community uh, having an issue with me writing them. I'm not going to let that dictate the next chapter in my life. Uh, so I just made that decision and people want to read them great. And if not, that's great too. There's plenty of things out there that, uh, that people can read or watch or, or whatever it might be, but this is my next chapter in life. And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to once again, listen to that calling and not have that dictated to me by anybody else. So, uh, so I kind of looked at it in those terms and I'm going to of course do the best job I can possibly do. My whole heart and soul goes into every single word that I put into these, into these books. I honor the story. Uh, I don't think about, uh, what a critic's going to say or what might work or losing an audience. No, I don't think about any of that. I only honor the story with every single word, which comes from my heart and soul. So, um, so for me, I don't really put too much, uh, energy into who's going to like it and who's not going to like it. I just, uh, I just write for the story. And for those of you listening to the boom pockets, there, there's six terminal list obviously is, it was the first one believer, savage son, the devil's hand in the blood. And the most recent one that just broke, uh, just was released a couple weeks ago. Only the dead. Uh, how'd you come up with the James Reed character? James Reese. Yes. So or James Reese, I'm sorry. People meet him in uh, the first book when he's at a, a stage that, that I was at. So he's a prior enlisted seal sniper. 
which I was. He becomes an officer at some point along the way, which I did. And he, now when the people, when the readers meet him, he's a troop commander in Afghanistan. It's a little different in the show, but uh, in the book, he was a troop commander. And that's where I was. I was not coming back from Afghanistan at that stage. I was coming back from Iraq. And that's when I picked my head up, looked around and realized that if I stayed in the SEAL teams, I was going to go to a staff job for a little bit. And then I was going to come back as a commanding officer, which uh, sounds very impressive. But in today's military, a commanding officer is really back in the tactical office operations center and they're uh, allocating assets and they're managing. And I had done everything in the SEAL teams that, uh, that I wanted to do. And my family needed me. We have a middle child with some really severe special needs and he needs 24 seven full-time uh, care. So I realized, you know, it's time to, it's time to move on here. I'm creeping up on 20 years, just finished my troop commander tour, which is the last time I'll tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. It was very clear to me that it was time to get out and, uh, and move on to this next stage. So that's where the reader meets James Reese. He's at that stage as well. But of course now a, uh, a calamity occurs in Afghanistan that draws him into a conspiracy and uh, the story takes off from there. So it was very therapeutic to write. And I didn't realize that at the outset, I thought when I wrote the, came up with the title, when I came up with the one page executive summary, when I came up with the outline, I still thought, you know what, I'll get the sniper weapon systems, right. If I don't know something, let's say about uh, an unmanned aerial vehicle or a, a tank, I can reach out to someone who does. I might, I can flip through the Rolodex. I know who to talk to, but uh, I knew that that stuff would be authentic. What I didn't realize was how therapeutic it was going to be in by how much of the feeling and emotion behind certain events I was involved with downrange were going to weave their way into this novel. So, and that's been with the way with all of the novels. So if my character gets, James Reese gets ambushed in Los Angeles, California, as part of this completely fictional narrative, I go back and I remember what it was like to be ambushed in Baghdad, Iraq in 2006. And I take those feelings and emotions and I apply them directly to this narrative and to that character. I don't have to go out and track someone down who was in an ambush in Iraq or Afghanistan and interview them and then have their answers go through a filter of other interviews I've done or whether movies I've watched or documentaries I've watched or podcasts I've listened to or other books I've read, preconceived notions, whatever it might be. No, they're coming directly from my heart and soul right onto that page with no filter. So uh, it became very therapeutic to, uh, to write these novels. And, uh, but he is also a, uh, a fictional character. So he is a better shot than I ever was. He's better at jujitsu and boxing than I could ever hope to have been. He's faster. He's stronger. Uh, he's a little wittier, but, uh, but he's also human. So he is not as good at some things as others, like the human intelligence side of the house and surveillance side of the house and the things that he was not really doing in the SEAL teams. He's not as good as those. and might fumble around a little bit with those. And he doesn't drink his coffee black. He has his coffee with some honey and some, uh, and some cream, just to humanize the character a little more, which it happens to be the same way that I have my coffee. So, um, so it's for me, I love every part of the process and feel so fortunate that the character has resonated. The books have resonated because that allows me to continue to do what I love, which is writing. Most recent book, only the dead. It's been out a couple of weeks now. Couple of weeks now, yep, came out mid uh, mid May, and uh, was number one New York Times bestseller in all three categories. And people love the audio, also. Ray Porter, incredible guy, he narrates the audio books, and it's number one New York Times bestseller uh, list right now in audio. And what an amazing guy Ray Porter is! So people love the audio version; it's the fastest growing segment of publishing, and uh, so that's out there out there as well. I know all the book tours have been sold out. I, I get. Uh the gentleman that told me to 
watch Terminal List in the begin uh, in the first place. He's tell he because he's like, oh, I'm all his book tours are sold out and uh, very cool. Tell me a little bit about AI and mm-hmm. uh, how scary it is. Yeah, so this the AI is coming in, really came onto everyone's radar in a way that it hadn't before this past January. And we heard, you know, we knew about it growing up. You're watching Terminator or whatever else, and you hear about artificial intelligence, but it, it hadn't really directly impacted almost everyone's life until this past January. And now it's in the news every single day. The first real industry to start dealing with it from uh, an effects standpoint. So the Writers Guild of America. So this is uh, the writers are on strike right now in Hollywood. Uh, there are two huge issues that they're discussing right now, which is the streaming side of the house. So how do you take that model that was network television and cable TV? And now how do you adapt that model for a streaming world? So that's one huge issue. And I'm sure there's a lot of other ones there as well, but streaming and AI. So how does AI figure into the future of writing in Hollywood? So if you could have some executives just tell a uh, computer, hey, make me a TV show. Uh, I think Friends is a good name. Make it about three friends, three guys, three girls living in New York, and there's a coffee shop. Make it funny. Go. Uh, And it spits something out that's not horrible, and you can kind of edit it and then get it out there. Well, uh, from a business perspective, they saved a ton of money. Um, so those are some issues that are going to get worked out here over the coming months that are being worked out right now, I hope. Um, but it's really the first industry to deal with it because there's not precedent. Uh, in my novels, I go a little bit deeper, uh, not not as far as the screenwriting side of the house, but military and defense industry, intelligence side of the house. How do they use AI and quantum computing uh, when it comes to combating our enemies? And what are our enemies doing? What are their capabilities in the cyber world? Uh, And so I really went deep down the rabbit hole in my last novel, which is called In the Blood. And it's kind of one of those things where you you have to interview a lot of people because if you're involved in quantum computing and artificial intelligence in the defense space, you're not going to talk about it very much. So it was my first time where I, or for the previous book before that called The Devil's Hand, I did the same thing, but it was on biodefense research and bioweapons. And in both of those instances with artificial intelligence and bioweapons, you really have to uh, talk to a lot of people because they're going to give you a little crumb. And then you're going to talk to someone else who's going to also give you a crumb, but it's going to be a different crumb than this other person. So you get to put this puzzle together. So I would be shocked if the facility that I described in my last novel, In the Blood, is not almost exactly like that in real life. And the capability isn't uh, not just like that, but a few years ahead of what I described because I had to keep it out of the science fiction realm. And so many of those people that I talked to, they told me that they could tell me more, but it would put my book in the science fiction category, which is scary if you've read that last book and know uh, the capabilities that I describe in there. This is all just fascinating stuff to me. It's awesome. The Believer, season two on Amazon. When's it coming out? So True Believer, so everything's on hold right now. And it's a uh, the first one we're doing is a spinoff, which is a prequel origin story. So one of the characters that was a, a fan favorite in that first series is played by Taylor Kitsch. His name's Ben Edwards. And uh, I won't say what happens in case people haven't seen it, but uh, at the end, 
something happens. And so we're going to go back and we're going to tell his origin story. So how he went from the SEAL teams to the CIA. Uh, this first show was really a conspiracy thriller, action thriller, revenge thriller. Well, this next one is more international espionage thriller. And uh, we got to episode five as far as scripts go and before the writer's strike. And then we all went pencils down on the scripts. But I am so fired up for what we have down thus far it's taking things to a whole nother level so it's going to blow people away so that's the first one and we roll that right into true believer which is the second novel and that stars chris pratt and that's the uh, the second book in the series so timeline wise not quite sure because of the writer's strike depends on how long that goes but uh, as soon as it's over we'll pick those pencils back up and and get back to work well jack carr this has been a pleasure man it, it, you're an inspiration to a lot of people and and uh yeah, I definitely enjoy your work, and and uh, I'm a I'm a big fan now. I, I know you got a lot of them. Uh, I know here's the book, guys. You're watching the or watch or listening to the Boone podcast. Only the Dead, most recent. It's it's a number one bestseller right now. It's Jack Carr. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the Boone podcast. For all of you listening to the Boone podcast, I appreciate you listening. We'll see you next time.